Matthew chapter 15 tonight. It is truly an honor. It's a privilege to be able to speak with you tonight. I wish I was filling this pulpit under better circumstances, but my thoughts and my prayers are with pastor and his family. And I do not take this uh, time lightly as I'm filling in for him. Um, But tonight I wanted to speak to you on the subject of the necessity for divine intervention. The necessity for the divine intervention. Before we get there, let me just say, uh, one of the... uh, I'm a sports fan, so if you're not a sports fan, just bear with me. Just have some patience really quick. (laughs) One of the sillier things, though, that happens in sports sometimes is this thing called the players-only meeting. Have you heard of this before? The players only meeting. It's meetings that occur usually when things are looking really bad for a team. They're just, they're not winning. They're not doing what they're supposed to be. They're not playing how they should. And for whatever reason, they're underperforming. They're just, they're, they're stinking right now. <laughs> and so in order to correct what's wrong, uh, the players then take it upon themselves to sort of uh, get out of this rut by calling a players only meeting to sort of clear the air. Let's clear the differences. Let's try and figure out what's going wrong because we should be playing better. I remember in 2010 or whatever it was when LeBron James came to Miami, it, they started out the season 8 and 9. <laughs> Not the ideal start they wanted to have for that year. And they had a players only meeting uh, and they went in and went on a winning streak after that. But um, but these players they close themselves off in a room. There's no coaches allowed, there's no executives allowed, there's no staff allowed. It's just the players. It's players only. You hear about this phenomenon every once in a while and these players, it seems like a, a, a right response, doesn't it? It seems like, oh, man, that's awesome. These guys, they're taking winning seriously. That's, you know, that's what they always say, the, the sports analysts say. They're taking winning seriously. But I think sometimes that these players-only meetings, they, I think they tend to make matters worse often. They, they, they tend to exacerbate the problem rather than eradicate the problem. And that's because um, they push out the coach out of the room. And what is the coach? He is, necessar- uh, for lack of a better word, he, he is a problem solver. For all the other things that a coach is, is paid for, for his, his skill, his technical knowledge of a, of a game, of a sport, or whatever, he is basically a people manager. Think of the, the amount of egos in an NBA locker room. A, a coach is managing all of those egos and all of those personalities, and he's trying to make sure the team plays together, not just plays the game. They play as a team. And, you know, to all your you know, sports movie cliches, they play for the name on the front of the jersey and not the name on the back of it. And that sounds really corny, but it's true. And the coach, you know, by pushing him out, they're pushing out the problem solver, the guy who can really have a, he has a better perspective on what's going on. And this is why I think players-only meetings don't work, because they're pushing out this guy who can see things better. the, The players who are on the court, and I can tell you from experience, when you're on the court, you don't have the same viewpoint. You can't see things that the coach can see. And this is, you know, like in football, that's why you have coaches way, way up in the stands. They're not there just to enjoy the nice AC on, you know, hot summer afternoons. They're there to see weaknesses and tendencies and make adjustments. And that's why you always have the quarterback. He always goes on the phone on the sidelines after the play. See, without that perspective, 
Without that problem solver, the team's success would dwindle over time. Yeah, they might get by on talent and athleticism, but that would wear out over the long course of time. The players, you could say, need a word from the outside. They need an outside word, a, a word of somewhat uh, intervention if they truly want to keep winning, maintain their winning ways. No players only meeting is going to work. Now I say all that to say that I think sometimes, I think sometimes Christians have pushed God out of the room and they've called for their own sort of believers only life. Their own sort of players only meeting. Now let me explain. The religion of the world, you could say, is just that. It's a religion that says, I have a problem, so I am going to solve it. You notice how insensible that is? By endeavoring to fix ourselves by turning to ourselves, we've resorted to brokenness to fix what's broken. That's the very definition of insanity. <laughs> Returning to a faulty formula to try and find something that is, produces a lasting solution. It'll never work. The outlook for this plan is hopeless, to say the least. And spiritually speaking, players-only meetings result in nothing but just more fallenness, more uh, brokenness, and more defeat. And similar to a team that's struggling when they should be succeeding, we need a word from the outside to break us from this sort of malaise of players-only meetings, a malaise of saying that I can fix myself. And therefore, we come to Matthew chapter 15. And here, in these first couple of verses of this chapter, I think we see a very different side of Jesus in his ministry. We see a, a different side of Christ. Often we think of Jesus as this nice, kind man, but sometimes Jesus was a very blunt man, a very uh, a brash man who said some things that were pretty harsh to some people. And I don't think we should ignore that. And such is what we find at the end of, uh, or in the middle of Matthew 15, where it says in verse 14, let them alone, let they be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Now, but let's back up really quick, because one of the recurring themes throughout the Gospels is this sort of ongoing conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. You can see this all throughout the Gospels. There was this sort of, uh, there was all these different scenes, these different scenarios where the Pharisees were coming up to Jesus and questioning him about the Mosaic Law. Nearly every point of conflict was them saying, you have um, failed the law in some sort of interpretation or practice. And the, the, the Pharisees were always accusing him of offending this law that they held up in such high regard. They're always looking to discount his ministry. And Matthew 15 continues this discourse. And, but it also contains what I just read in verse 14, one of the most disparaging uh, statements uh, said by Jesus. But back in verse 1, let's look at the scene. The chapter begins with a bunch of, it says, scribes and Pharisees, and they're looking to trip Jesus up again. It says, then came Jesus, or excuse me, then came to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem. Now, we have to note first that these guys, it says, were of Jerusalem. That means they were of a higher rank. Some of these other scenes that you uh, might have be familiar with, they, it doesn't contain that uh, little phrase there. And I think it's, that's important. They were more of more prestige. They're coming from Jerusalem, which I think you also might get the idea that this was planned. This was a planned encounter. It wasn't just, hey, oh man, we ran into Jesus. Let's ask him a question. No, this was a planned sort of concerted effort by these guys. They were prepared. This wasn't random. They were prepared for this encounter. 
uh, no doubt arriving sort of ready to sort of uh, try and uh, trip Jesus up. And so uh, here they come to Jesus, it says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So here's this grand indictment of these Pharisees. They've prepared this, this accusation. And at first it doesn't seem that serious. We're, we're talking about hand washing. But uh, even though to us it might not seem serious, to the Pharisees it was a very serious uh, offense. You know, for a little more clarity, just uh, you can turn or I'm just going to read from Mark chapter 7 from the same scene. Mark 7 says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees, and of certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands, oft eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? So they are upholding this tradition they have of washing hands. And really what, what they're saying here, the Pharisees are basically accusing the disciples of Jesus, Hey, are you guys anti-law? You guys are not washing your hands like we do. Are you guys against the law? But you, you see, because in addition to the Torah, right, the, the first five books of your Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah uh, is what these guys would have memorized. Most of them would have committed it to memory. But in addition to the Torah, the Pharisees ascribe to what's called the Talmud which is sort of a, a, a written-down system of oral laws that they had passed down through the years, and they began to write them down, and they began to enforce them on more people. And by the time, uh, in the first century at this time, the Talmud had ballooned into about 600 laws that dictated one's every move of every single day. And so we have to think that the Torah is God's word, and the Talmud is man's word. But by this oral tradition, by the Talmud, the Pharisees had expanded on all these commands of hand-washing. And in fact, if you uh, can read some of the old uh, manuscripts, you find that they have uh, regulations and rules on how you put your hands into the water and how you wash your hands and how much water you're supposed to use and so forth. There was rules on every single uh, part of this sort of event. And if one of those regulations wasn't followed, you would be uh, guilty uh, of, of, you would be, face harsh penalties and perhaps even excommunication. And so these secondary laws, these laws were invented by the Pharisees. And they're basically saying, you guys aren't following our laws. You're not following our traditions. They had transformed this, this matter of hand-washing, as it's described in Leviticus, from one of just bodily cleanliness to one of religious purity. They had elevated it to a point where it shouldn't have been. And so this obviously, this obviously frustrates Jesus. And just look at his response. Look at verse 3. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, 
by whatsoever thou mindest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother. He, uh, he shall be free. Thus ye have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their lip mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You see, by this accusation, they once again, these Pharisees, had displayed that they had completely missed the point. And he, Jesus there then proceeds to explain that, that by uh, the, he begins to explain the purpose behind the Mosaic law and then also their tradition and how they had rejected the former in an in exchange of keeping the latter. They had, as he says in verse 6, they had made it of none effect. You know, Mark 7 speaks more to this, but really the point of Jesus, uh, the point Jesus is making here is that they had rejected God's law in favor of man's. And in verse um, 5, where it says, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift. Now, what, what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about this tradition called Corbin. Now, we know, if you know your Bibles from the Ten Commandments, we know that, that a child is commanded with honoring his father and his mother, and thy days will be long upon the earth. Now, that carried with it other laws, where uh, if a parents, the parents were in older age and they weren't able to care for themselves, a child was commanded by law to care for them, both uh, financially and also personally. However, there was this tradition of the Pharisees called Corbin where they found a way to sort of avoid this ob- obligation. Where they didn't have to care for their parents anymore. And they could still uh, sort of appear righteous. And whatever a child sort of invoked this right, this tradition, whatever uh, things, whatever money or whatever uh, property he owed his parents to care for them could be given to the temple, to the synagogue. And it released them from any duty of, towards his parents. Now, uh, it sort of gives the idea of, uh, hey, look at me, I'm giving to the church, look at all the things I'm doing. But really, they weren't obeying God at all. (laughs) They were obeying man's law, they were breaking God's law in order to obey man's law. And by the Pharisees' approval of this tradition, and in fact, their encouragement of it, they had lifted their traditions up to the same level as God's law and making their perspective on religion, their perspective on righteousness equal to God's. And that's why Jesus says, but in vain do they worship me, verse 9, teaching for doctrines the commandment of men. And in many cases, the Pharisees consider their words higher than God's, way higher. And in one little phrase from their Talmud, the words, it says, the words of the scribes are lovely above the words of the law. For the words of the law are light and weighty, but the words of the scribes are all weighty. (laughs) Notice the pride in that statement. That ours are more important than God's, our words are. And so then Christ's correction of them and subsequent scathing of these Pharisees reminds us once again that he's not against law. You know, some people like to say that, that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Yes, he has, but he has not abolished it. He's not against law at all. Jesus isn't against hand washing. He's not against washing our hands. He's just against the exaltation of man's law above God's. And in actuality, I think, as we'll find in a minute, that Jesus isn't saying that he's against law. He's actually saying that the Pharisees are. He's actually reversing the script on him. 
And where they might have appeared religious, he's saying that their heart is far from God honoring. They honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so then Christ turns then, and he addresses the multitude and his disciples directly. Look at what he says. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. For they be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So really, I think what we have here is an interesting uh, little scene. And I think, I think you'd almost consider this sort of a, a, a carrying over of his exposition of the Mosaic Law, which you find back in Matthew chapter 5. Remember where he goes through all those different commandments in Matthew 5, where you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, it's, I think you can almost hear Jesus saying that. Where he, it's almost as if he's saying, You have heard that it is said that that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but I say unto you, that which cometh out of the mouth defileth a man. He's continuing his exposition of the Mosaic Law. And the point he's making here, though, and the point that he continues to make in the rest of this, uh, in the next couple of verses, is that external cleansing doesn't do the trick. What proceeds out of the heart is more important what enters into the mouth. The point he's making here and also in Matthew 5 is that motives and attitudes are of more significance than food and drink. Basically he's saying, if you guys really want to be pure, just washing your hands isn't enough. That's not fulfilling the law. And just like in Matthew 5, where he says, just loving your neighbor isn't enough. Just not having sex with someone outside of marriage isn't enough. Just not killing your brother isn't enough. It's much deeper than that. He's trying to drive them deeper into the Word. See, changing the outside doesn't get to the real problem, because the real problem we have is a problem of the heart. We don't have necessarily a behavioral problem. We have a heart problem that manifests itself in behaviors. So we might be able to change our behavior, but that would only affect our surface-level sort of badness. But the sin of our heart would still remain. And that's because the stain of sin can only be washed away by the blood of the land, not by something that you can change in your behavior. No players-only meeting will cut it. You can't go to yourself to fix yourself. You can't play, have a players-only meeting with yourself and say, I'm going to rid myself of this sin. You need an outside word. And this is what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to get by on a players-only meeting. They were trying to fix the problem of sin and sort of establish their own religious system whereby they would look to their rigorous uh, codes and their lofty traditions. But Jesus exposes them here for the failures that they are. And basically he says, your hand-washing is in vain. Like he says in verse 9, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Even with all of, their, all of their ceremony, all of their ritual, all of the things they were, they were doing, their hearts were filthy. And in actuality, ironically, the Pharisees' view of the law wasn't high enough 
That's what Jesus is basically saying here. That these guys who were supposed lawyers, they failed to comprehend the full meaning of the law. And these supposed experts had sort of brought the law down, down to their level. They had misinterpreted this law by turning it into a code that they could keep. And by doing so, they had completely missed the point. They completely missed the entire point of the law. Because, you see, where the Pharisees had determined that their righteousness was up to them, by all the things that they were doing, all these little codes that they were following, all these traditions that they were upholding, Christ was speaking a different message. Not one that disregarded these rules necessarily, but one that enhanced them, one that intensified them. By speaking this here, Jesus wants to make the point that it's painfully obvious that no amount of human effort would ever satisfy the holiness of God. He's utterly against the notion that humans can pull off the divine. That's what he's saying. And this, 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 uh, this levy against the Pharisees as, as blind leaders of the blind is, is really the outside word that they needed. It's a, you guys are on the wrong track. You are blind leading the blind and you're both going to end up in the ditch. And in fact, this is the outside word I think we all need. That it's not up to us and that salvation is a categorical, categorical impossibility if it's left up to us. Take this little test with me. Well, you don't have to raise your hand or you don't have to uh, do anything externally, but just take it in your hearts. When was the last time you murdered one of your siblings or murdered one of your parents or murdered one of your relatives? I'm guessing you haven't. I'm guessing none of us have. But when was the last time you were angry with them? Maybe uh, they said something that, that made you get really mad or maybe they did something against you. Maybe they hit you or they punched you or they messed up your room. They touched your stuff. <laughs> You got angry at them. Probably you, that happened on the way uh, to church tonight. <laughs> or maybe someone cut you off in traffic. <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> but Jesus says here and in Matthew 5 that that is just as sinful as if you had killed them. That's the standard. It's not about just not killing. It's about not getting angry. It's not just about your actions. It's about your motivations too. It's about your heart, Jesus is saying. And so, where does that leave us? Does it sound impossible? Well, that's good, because it is. And that's the point. This whole thing, this whole uh, matter of religion, this whole matter of salvation is completely impossible apart from God's grace. And that's what he wants to lead you to. That's entirely impossible when it's left up to yourself. Any attempt at self-salvation ends up in the ditch. Blind leading the blind is utter failure. This righteousness of the law, this completely 24-7, 100% perfection that is required is absolutely impossible. It's not something you can pull off. And so long as we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are, just like these Pharisees were here, we're no better than blind leading the blind. We're no better than players having a players-only meeting, looking to ourselves to solve a problem that only someone from the outside can give us the solution to. Christ wants us to see that. Here, elsewhere, all over the Bible, he wants to see uh, that this whole thing is impossible when left up to us. That's the bad news. And that's when Jesus gives us the good news, the outside word that we need. Because you see, yes, this is impossible, but guess what? 
Guess what he says in Mark chapter 10? Without man it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. That's the good news. That with God, all things are possible. That this is what Jesus does. This is what grace does. Grace makes the impossible possible. It fulfills the law for you. It gives you what you could never get for yourself. And it spans that vast cavern between your dark sin and Jesus' deliverance. And by the intervention of God's Son, the, whole, the impossible was accomplished for you. That's what the Gospel declares to us. That's what God's outside Word tells us. That I have done this for you. Spurgeon says it this way, that grace brings into the heart an entirely foreign element. It's a word that comes outside of us. That's, gospel, that's God's word. It, God's gospel is his outside word. A word of divine intervention. And the Pharisees and us too are in a perpetual state of needing this word. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, of we are in need of that grace that comes to us. And that's Jesus Himself. I can't shake this word from Proverbs. In Proverbs 25.25 it says, that as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. That good news from a far off country is the outside word, that's Jesus Himself. He's that cold water for a thirsty soul. And so it is that God would have a sea that He is bringing the outside Word that we all need. This Word of transformation. This Word of salvation. And it's not through, as these Pharisees thought, it's not through religious ritual or ceremonial uh, sort of devotion, but it's only by faith that the salvation comes. For faith, you see, uh, faith is the admission that you can't do it. That's what faith is. Faith not, is not a mustering up of your own strength. Faith is an admission that you can't do it. That you can't live up to all these measures. You can't live up to all these standards. And you're crying out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what faith is. Faith, in short, I would like to say that faith is the recognition of the absolute necessity of divine intervention. You absolutely need this outside word. That's what faith declares. I can't do it on my own. I need outside help. And it's an owning of your desperation. And that's who Jesus comes to save, the desperate. You see, realizing the absolute inflexibility of the law makes the gospel absolutely indispensable. <laughs> Once you realize that you can't do this, then you absolutely know that you must have someone else to do it for you. And the good news is Jesus, Jesus did it for you. The Pharisees, you see, were missing the mark. They were counting on themselves, and they were, they were not counting them uh, among the desperate. Like we read in Luke chapter 18, where he didn't want to even consider himself uh, uh, in the same class as that publican. I'm not even like this man over here who's also praying in the temple that day. He, he didn't want to count himself. And I'm, I, I think that's sort of the heart of all the Pharisees, but sometimes I think it's the heart of us too. I know for me it is. I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not in a gutter, or drunk or something. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not stuck in all these other other sorts of sins. But God wants me to see that's not the point. What are? What? Where's your heart, Brad? They were. These Pharisees were contending for what I like to call a delusional righteousness, 
One that insisted that my own works are filling up the, the law. But God's outside word sort of adjourns that sort of thinking. It adjourns a player's only meeting. And it puts an end to that sort of living. Because Jesus comes and he says, you can't do it, but I have done it. Remember his last words on the cross? It is finished. He says to us, you are blind, but I have come to give the blind their sight. That's what Jesus says to us. He comes close that we might be drawn closer. He brings the outside word that we might be drawn to him. And so, therefore, we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves this question, what kind of life are we living? Is it one that's pushing God to the sidelines? Are we living a believer's only life that says, I can do it myself. I don't need your intervention, God. I am doing just fine on my own. Are you living a player's only life, so to speak? Or are you, one that, are you living one that has embraced the fullness of God's saving grace that says it is finished? Are you ignoring or not listening to this outside word of the gospel and contending for your own righteousness? Or are you listening to that still, that small voice that says, I have done it. Because one leads to freedom and one leads to failure. One leads to deliverance and the other one leads to the ditch. What life are you living Have you embraced your own necessity for divine intervention? That's what we must ask ourselves. That's what I must ask myself every single day. What kind of life are you living? Let's pray.